0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Bramowitz.
0: Each day we bring you the
2: most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
2: We're sitting here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios trying to peg what my co-host and colleague very correctly called the smoking gun or the red flag, <laughs> the smoking, smoking gun, gun the smoking was, yeah. gun, smoking flag uh, for why markets are feeling so low today. A lot of people pointing their fingers at the ADP report. Cara Kadana, uh, who is the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, sitting here maybe agreeing right i mean is this is this a surprise the disappointing adp report sh- showing that payrolls uh, at us employers cooled In September,
3: I don't think it is a surprise. I mean, it's a little bit weaker than what the consensus was looking for, but not uh, materially, just uh, five thousand or so. But uh, we are slowing down relative to what we saw uh, earlier in the year. Uh, That being said, this kind of negative sentiment in the market uh, was uh, evident during Asia hours, uh, intensified during Europe uh, trading hours, and then now uh, uh, spreads into the U.S., although not quite to the same degree as uh, what we saw in Europe. So I don't know that there's a a single smoking gun. It's more of a Confluence of events. So ADP tells us the labor market's a little weaker. Uh, Boris Johnson continuing to uh, try to wrangle uh, hard Brexit oh, come on. Uh, by <laughs> October thirty Boris Johnson
2: 1st. for today's pessimism. Everyone
3: sings a few bars in this uh, song, oh, like <laughs> right? You have uh, WTO talking about uh, trade sanctions uh, with Europe uh, over, uh, you know, uh, squabbling over uh, Airbus and, and Boeing and whatnot. So th- th- there's just a lot of little things adding up, which kind of build on what we saw yesterday, which was a big surprise uh, in the manufacturing ISM.
2: All right, Paul. So blame Boris Johnson. Yes,
3: exactly. I always like to blame Brexit. Among others. Among others. (laughs) Among others.
1: So, Carl, is this change? You good folks down in Bloomberg Economics, you're crunching the numbers. You've seen the, you know, the manufacturing are, you know, the ISM uh, for the latest month was uh, weaker than expected. So we know that manufacturing... Uh, is weak and probably weakening, certainly in the U.S., and we, we know it's happening internationally. Um, so are you kind of taking down your outlook or preparing to take down your outlook? Because maybe the uh, consumer isn't quite as strong as we thought.
3: Well, we took our outlook down on uh, August 1st, uh, when uh, the next uh, round of tariffs were announced uh, back after the July Fed meeting. The very next day, uh, President Trump announced that uh, tariffs would go into effect at the start of August, uh, start of October, excuse me, uh, and uh, also again in uh, in December. Uh, they moved that uh, October 1st deadline back to October 15th, uh, but it does look like the 25% tariffs will go up to 30% uh, in the middle of this month. It doesn't, you know, there have been very little indication that we're actually moving away from that uh, at this point in time and you see the impact of those trade frictions showing up in things like the ISM survey uh, yesterday. Uh, Additionally, another uh, roughly 150 uh, billion uh, product uh, subject to tariff in the middle of December. So the price tag on tariffs uh, is about two and a half times larger uh, in 2019 uh, compared to 2018. And so that does move the needle on growth and we're in a slower moving economy already. uh, So when you have slower growth, the economy is more susceptible uh, to those types of shocks. That being said, I know there's been talked this morning about one handle on GDP and whatnot, stall speed. we have been looking for uh, about 1.8, 1.7 percent GDP growth in the back half of the year. And we moved to that call back on August 1st when the tariffs went into effect. So uh, that's what we, stall speed. The tone we were seeing in the market uh, was not consistent with sub 2 percent GDP growth. Now we're starting to see that reality set in as job creation, manufacturing activity all looks more consistent with a sub 2 percent number. But to answer your question, stall speed for the US economy is about 1.4 1.5 percent growth so we are closer to stall speed, but we're not there yet. Uh, And that's why my team thinks that we can actually muddle through this soft patch. Uh, Thanks very much to consumers remaining resilient.
2: So that was my question, right? At what point do you reach a tipping point? How much pessimism should be baked in right now? Is it a recession that we're facing or is it simply uh, lower inflation, lower growth, and just lower uh, asset increases?
3: Well, uh, it's not recession. Uh, And it's not even growth recession. And there's a distinction between recession and growth recession. Uh, Everyone knows what recession is. Uh, Growth recession is a period where growth slows down so much not that we fall into contraction, but actually that things start to unravel, like the unemployment rate starts to drift higher. Uh, I don't think we'll even get to a growth recession uh, in the back half of this year. So uh, labor market continues to produce job gains in excess of 85 to 100,000 per month. Uh, That will keep the unemployment rate uh, relatively steady uh, at uh, current levels. So I think we're just accepting a a reality of of a much more sluggish profile to the economy here in the US and then much weaker uh conditions abroad uh germany probably slipping into technical recession uh uk on the cusp of recession uh, once uh brexit is uh, executed 2020. does bloomberg economics have a gdp forecast uh gdp growth for 2020 will be about two to two and a quarter percent so we're uh, kind of refining things as we uh, look at that um, that being said one thing we should keep in mind here right everyone's talking about the r word uh The ground is very fertile for a significant rebound in activity if these trade headwinds are removed. So the Fed has policy rates set in a very accommodative stance, right? They're giving the economy steroids, uh, so to speak. So rates are accommodative. Corporate profit growth is positive. Uh, Corporate balance sheets are in good condition. Uh, And the unemployment rate is the lowest since the Vietnam draft was in effect. So things are well positioned that if we don't just squander this all with increase in tariff after increase in tariff, uh, the economy could rebound uh, quite nicely uh, in 2020 and beyond.
1: Carl Rickadonna, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Thanks so much for joining us uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Today we're joined by Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Uh, she joins us from the London Bureau. So Therese, it looks like Boris Johnson today outlined his plan for a new Brexit agreement and warned the European Union to compromise or watch the UK walk away from the talks and leave the block with added deal. How did that go over?
4: Well, we're still waiting to hear an official EU response. Um, the, the EU has said it wants to examine the details of the proposal, but the kind of early indications, uh, were that, uh, you know, we're not that warm to the deal because it's, proposing uh, what looks like a breach of the EU's red lines in that there is no way to do the Johnson uh, deal without putting customs checks somewhere. Now, he's said they wouldn't be, and we're talking about Ireland and the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is the key to sort of unlocking this whole Brexit problem and, and getting a deal. And Johnson has said there'll be no checks at the border. Um, they will honor the Good Friday peace agreement. However, he's also said there will have to be checks somewhere. And so I think the sticking point is how you actually do that.
2: The other sticking point is that Boris Johnson is quickly losing support even from his own party. I mean, how much power does he have in sending this uh, this this proposal over to EU?
4: Well, he doesn't have power if you look at the number of sort of MPs that he commands in Parliament. Um, however, the real uh, you know, question is whether he would have enough support to get his deal through uh, before October 19th, when parliamentary legislation requires him to seek an extension. Now, if the Northern Ireland Democratic Unionist Party go along with Johnson, as they had indicated so far, they are open to doing, and he can reclaim Tory MPs that he expelled uh, from the the party whip from from the sort of the voting part of the party. If he can get their support and a few Labour MPs. He's on side then he gets a deal through and then we're in very very different territory because he can then call an election claiming he's delivered brexit and uh you know and then it's really game on for johnson but whether you know the labor party is going to give him that you know gift whether the eu is going to give him enough to allow him to recommend the deal to parliament all those are are unclear right now
1: so trez can you just update us on the timing i know we're kind of getting towards the I think the end of this process and somehow the Halloween holiday kind of is stuck in my mind. So give us a sense of kind of <laughs> yeah, what the, the sure. uh, timing is.
4: It's incredibly confusing. But, you know, let's start by saying the next 48 hours are key to find out how the EU responds to uh, to Johnson's proposals if they – agree to negotiate, then we've got a sort of 10-day period before the EU summit, which is happening on the 17th of October. Now, legislation passed in Parliament requires Johnson, if he cannot get a deal, to ask the EU for an extension by October 19th. October 31st, Halloween, is Brexit Day if nothing else happens. If there's no extension, the UK leaves the EU without a deal on October 31st. The parliamentary legislation is designed to make that impossible. It's triggered this request for an extension. Johnson has vowed that he will not seek that extension. He said it would signal the extinction of the Tory party. So don't be surprised if this ends up where else but in court again.
2: The other thing it could do what about a second referendum, right? I mean, are we still talking about that? Or does that seem less likely, more likely now?
4: Well, I'll tell you who's talking about it. The Labour Party is talking about it. So at their conference, uh, which was a week ago, they agreed that the official Labour policy would be to win an election, uh, renegotiate uh, a deal or renegotiate Theresa May's deal. So they would it would be a Labour deal, and then put it to the people in a referendum uh, with the uh, Labor Party not specifying which way it would urge people to vote. So you could have a situation in which they've negotiated the deal, but, but uh, you know campaign against it. So the Labor Party wants a referendum. That's very clear. The other two sort of major parties, mainly the conservatives, they want to just get Brexit done, as we've heard in their party conference. And the Liberal Democrats, who have re- been revived, uh, are campaigning to revoke Article 50, that is cancel Brexit altogether.
1: So just real quickly, I know you said we're, going to, we're waiting on the EU, but they haven't given any indication that they're going to budge, right?
4: Well, I think the, for the EU, it's a very delicate uh point in this process. They don't want to be blamed for allowing a no-deal Brexit to go ahead. Of course, they will be blamed if it happens. Johnson made very clear in his speech today and in his letter to uh, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, he says it would be a failure of statecraft. So the EU uh, wants to avoid the blame, which means I think they're likely to engage to some extent um, in negotiations. But uh, this is a very big ask for them because it's, it, it, Johnson dismisses as a technicality what the EU regards as very fundamental, and that is maintaining the peace on, uh, in Northern Ireland by ensuring that there are no physical infrastructure that could be attacked by, by terrorists or sectarian groups.
2: Therese Raphael,
4: thank you so much as
2: always uh, for that insight on the morass that is Brexit. Therese Raphael is Bloomberg Opinion Editor joining us from London. I remember after I had my first child, there was a game-changing moment, Paul.
1: Game-changing moment. It
2: was when he was big enough to fit into an ergo carrier. What's Uh, an Ergo carrier? It was a carrier where I could carry him around, not have a stroller, Ah. get on the subway, go up and down stairs, and it was fine. And here we have Elias Sabo, who just joined us in our offices here, chief executive officer of Compass Diversified Holdings. And uh, one of his portfolio companies is the Ergo company. Oh, perfect. (laughs) So I had to to sort of reminisce a little bit, but I want to just ask you about a company like that, which has expanded tremendously since the time when I had my first child. I'm wondering, how do you expand it? when it's got such a specific focus, while remaining true to the brand, but also getting big enough scale. And this is sort of a really key question right now as we look at, say, WeWork and some of these other companies that are struggling to do just that.
5: Yeah so Lisa it's one of the challenges that any consumer company has and you know in our business we invest in industrial and branded consumer companies you know a company like Ergo when we acquired the business it was from the founder Karin Frost and Karin was looking for us to help build the business distribution wise globally. And so the first part of the playbook was to establish distribution in Europe and Asia China being one of the faster growing markets that we have right now. And then as with every consumer product business that we own, the lifeblood of it is innovation. So figuring out what are the pain points that consumers have with that product? How can we innovate to create, you know, a better product that better addresses the consumer's needs? And then to understand what freedom the customer is going to give us to be able to expand into adjacent markets without diluting down the, you know, the core market that we're addressing.
1: So Elias, you your company Compass Diversified Holdings is essentially essentially a a holding company, and you you mentioned you have some uh, brand and consumer uh, companies that you own. So what we're seeing in the markets today is concern about the consumer, uh, you know, and I think, so from your perspective, What is your sense of how the consumer is right now?
5: Yeah, so the consumer has been strong and the consumer has been strong over the course of 2019. And it's really been a carryover for a number of years. And what we're seeing is, you know, in today's market, the consumer has a lot of choices. So you have to give them reasons to want to buy and how you connect to your consumer is changing dramatically. Clearly the rise of digital media and social media is changing the connectivity and how you interact. But generally, the consumer feels strong, labor markets continue to be very tight, wage gains continue to be strong, and that continues to fuel spending. And you know, at the same time, we have very easy financial conditions. So I think if you look at balance sheets of consumers today, they are incredibly strong. And so that would, I would say, you know, from our standpoint, is the real pillar of strength in the economy. Luckily, that represents 70% of the economy. So the economy is still, you know, growing, but, uh, you know, it's remained strong throughout the year.
2: as how many of your portfolio companies sort of sit within this retail consumer facing category?
5: Yeah, so we have four companies in the consumer facing and then we have four in the true industrial side.
2: Okay, so of those four, how many do you think that the tariffs will be a serious concern if they do go? Uh, into effect the more serious or or significant uh, tariffs that have been proposed by President Trump on China?
5: Yeah, so we're fortunate in that we have very little exposure to tariffs. We moved production out of China years ago. So Ergo Baby would be a classic example. We moved into Vietnam many years ago for reasons that were totally different. There was a lot of IP theft as we hear about a lot in these trade talks. We experienced it firsthand. And so as a result of that, we re-domiciled where our production base was going to be for Ergo and for all of our companies out of China. Now we've had some minor exposure where products are still produced in China and on those instances what we have found is with tariffs going into effect the dollar is strengthened our vendors find that they have significant capacity in China so the vast majority of the tariff has been pushed back on the vendor and dollar strength is enabling that. Some of the cost pressure that you do get, we have found receptivity with our retail partners and pushing through. But the vast majority, you know, has been pushed back to our uh, our trade partners.
1: So Elias, uh, again, about uh, four companies in the industrial space, four companies in the consumer space, where is Compass Diversified Holdings looking now to deploy capital? Yeah, well, now is an interesting time. And I would say,
5: we're we're looking out and as our strategic direction this year was we were looking to be more net divestors than investors. And the reason for that is we looked at risks that seem elevated from the economy. Um, We have a trade war that's ongoing. We have a presidential election. We have Brexit. You have $17 trillion of global negative rates, which probably tells you everything you need to know about the global economy and the health of it. And so we felt that the environment to be putting capital to work today was not conducive because at the same time, prices are extraordinarily high. And so that felt like a you know upside down risk reward balance for us. Now, that being said, we're constantly out there looking for new opportunities. I would say we principally are looking to invest through the eight different platform companies that we have to do add on acquisitions. And we still remain open to divestitures just as a broad strategy mandate.
2: So given your experience, what do you think the next downturn will look like? And this is the reason why I ask is because that's what's on everyone's mind today.
5: Yeah, well, so I guess this could be a bit of a, you know, I don't know if it's contrarian or it maybe a little bit of an outlier. But, you know, our view is the policies of the Federal Reserve have really pushed a lot more in terms of the, you know, the money, the quantitative easing, the lowering of interest rates. We believe that it has pushed the cycles to be both stronger on the up cycle and longer in duration, but probably more violent on the downside. And I think, you know, what we saw in 2000 and the first correction was a pretty significant, you know, drawdown in economic contraction, but then the policies that created the 2002 to 2008 expansion driven by you know quantitative easing type policies yeah. caused a much bigger drawdown i think today we fear that those could it could be an even bigger drawdown In
2: 2008
5: that would be our fear wow
1: interesting elias sabo thank you so much for joining us elias is chief executive officer of Compass diversified holdings joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio
2: There has been a big question hovering over the cannabis and the tobacco industries over the past few months, and that is what will the vaping outbreak, the deaths that are mounting in the United States tied to vaping, do to their industries? Joining us now, Mark Zuckelin. He is CEO of Canopy Growth, uh, joining us from Ontario. Uh, Mark, I want to start there because it's something that I'm sure all of your investors are asking. What do you do with the fact that the FDA has raised serious concerns about? vaping devices and that 15 people at least have been uh, have died in what has been linked to the e-cigarettes at a time when that is sort of the preferred vehicle for using cannabis right now
6: yeah I think you know the the stories that we're hearing certainly out of the the US are are tragic and I think you know compounding um, that tragedy is that um, there's still a lot of unknowns people are still this many months later um, trying to gather the information and understand, um, uh, you know, the role of, of of the illicit market. Whether it's um, people are tampering with products, whether it's you know vitamin E is being added. You know, a lot of a lot of questions on on what's happening. And so um, it's very hard for me to speak to that particular set of, of details. But what I can do is speak to canopy growth and and what's happening in Canada. Because as as you point out, in the next several months, um, you know, we will be uh, launching vape products in Canada. And, and I think it's important to talk about what that structure looks like, right? In Canada, we have a fully regulated market. So the way we make our products, what goes into the products, where those products are sold, um, all have rules that surround them and, and rules that we, we need to operate in. And, you know, I think the the second thing, if you look at, you know, players like Canopy, you know, we... We did not go out to China and just source the first product we could find and ask somebody else to fill it and and put our brand on it. Um, We've been building these products for two years and even, you know, many, many months ago. You know, the focus has been on consumer features and consumer safety. So our products are tamper resistant. Our products will be UL certified, meaning the heating elements are controlled and the battery is controlled. Uh, you will have you know serialization. So God forbid something does happen, you're able to trace it back and immediately know what's happened. And again, we control the full process. We control what goes in, so we can ensure it is only cannabis and it is only terpenes, which which you know do naturally occur in in cannabis. So there's you know a number of of things I think focus on, and it comes down to to threefold. One. Being transparent, there are unknowns and there are risks associated with vaping, and and we need to be transparent about that, and we need to do research to understand more. Two, a regulated environment to control the products going out is essential. And three, have companies that are investing long-term to build products and brands. So, Mark, just give
1: us a sense of, kind of, in your experience and based upon your knowledge, how are... Uh, consumers using vaping products with cannabis and uh, is, is that a problem in and of itself?
6: So, you know, in, in Canada today, there are no actual legal um, venues to sell um, THC or CBD vape pens. So, you know, anything being sold in Canada today is essentially through an unregulated, un, uncontrolled market. In the United States, um, there is, you know, of, of course, state level um rules governing some products but you know other products you know are 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 illicit. And so i think you know the the again i fall back to you know this need for regulation you know we're one of these these few companies who, who who go on air and ask for more regulation ask for more um controls because i think it's it's good for our sector it's good for um the consumer
2: so what lesson should the United States take from Canada? If you're saying that you do have the regulatory regime, is there a lesson that can be derived as the U.S. tries to understand the underpinnings of this vaping epidemic?
6: So, you know, without even speaking specifically to to vapes, you know, we, we, this is a message we're carrying with respect to CBD and frankly, with respect to, um, you know, a state's right system, you know, for um, for THC products, which is... Um, you know, a, a clear federal set of rules, uh, a clear you know, set of regulatory processes, um, uh, you know, testing that a consumer can rely on, um, you know, understanding a brand and how it relates back to the producer, you know, all of these things. You know, these are these are good things for for the sector, for the businesses in the sector and the consumers who buy the products.
1: Mark Zakulin. Thanks so much for joining us. Mark is the CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, uh, calling us via phone from Smith Falls, Ontario. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.